Aloha, and welcome to another Candid Conversation. Today, I'm happy to be joined by a man by the name of Bill Piles. Bill and I have known each other probably since the 1600s, and we've got the faces and scars and wrinkles to, um, to testify to that. Bill, glad to have you with us. Good day. Thank you. Glad to be here. Bill, over your career, uh, well, maybe you should give us a little bit of a thumbnail of your career, starting with the Marines and then bringing us forward so that everybody gets an understanding of why you've got scars and wrinkles. Well, uh, it's, it's a long story, but I'll try to keep it short if that's at all possible. But uh, yes, when, when I got out of high school, I joined the Marine Corps. It wasn't in the cards for me at that point in time. So I did the next best thing. I thought join the Marine Corps to learn a trade and be a productive member of society. So the Marine Corps uh, put me into armament repair, which was Amtraks and tanks. And for the most part, just think construction equipment uh, without a bucket or a blade, rather a machine gun or some kind of armament on it. So I had a, I had a, a very good time in the Marine Corps repairing heavy equipment, uh, raised to the rank of E5, Sergeant E5 was responsible for several platoons of tractors. And when I was discharged, I went knocking at the local cat dealer's door, and all that Marine Corps experience got me a rock-bottom apprenticeship position, entry-level technician at the local cat dealer. So, yeah, there was some ego checking that had to be done, but I did it because I, I was fascinated uh, with the Caterpillar equipment. And back then, if, if you worked for cat, that was a badge of honor. That was, that was the pillar of the construction industry. So they had an outstanding training program and an apprenticeship, and I went through that. So I went to, uh, I started in used equipment. Then I got a chance to get into uh, the main shop. The main shop, I went into a service truck for a few years, about seven. Then I became a shop foreman. I was a service manager, and I capped that off, uh, became general service manager of the entire dealership, uh, five locations, northern, most of all northern Illinois, and uh, I was pretty proud of that, starting entry level. So I would love getting in front of new technicians or go to the tech schools and let them know that you set your sights high. Don't just want to be the service manager because with some potential and drive. You can rise to the, to, to the very top of that dealership. And once you've accomplished that, you can take that anywhere. They, they can't take their training away from you or your attitude or your desire. And so from there, I moved on to a couple other dealers, always in uh, product support management, fat parts and service. And then it all uh, ended up with me coming to Florida and worked for uh, Nortrax, which was the John Deere dealership. They had 56 locations in uh, the U.S. and Canada. And I worked my way there to become the vice president of service for, for the entire company. And that was the pinnacle of my career. So I thought it's not too bad of a, of a sergeant getting out of the Marine Corps uh, and work starting in the wash rack at the local cat dealer and, and being an entry-level technician. But it can be done. Oh, yeah. And in, in between, just so we don't miss the brands, you worked for a while with a Komatsu dealer too, didn't you? Yes. Uh, yes. I worked for one of the largest uh, uh, Komatsu dealers in the country, a very, very well-run uh, family business Komatsu dealer. And uh, I went there and became their general manager of product support for several locations in, in Pennsylvania and uh, West, Virginia, West Virginia. And just about 
before I left, they also bought the Komatsu dealer up in Buffalo. Now they're pretty heavy up and down the East Coast. And uh, so I spent some time there as well. Yeah, so I've hit Caterpillar, Komatsu, and John Deere. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, and I, I believe in a business so hard. I've even, both my sons are in the business and they've been doing very well at it. So it's a family affair. Yeah. One, works at, one works at Deere. And and I was at Komatsu, so it made Thanksgiving a little bit more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it makes for interesting discussions at the dinner table, doesn't it? Sure does. Yeah, the uh, my my one son takes the runs like a deer stickers, and then he modifies the letters to say something completely different. But he loves to, uh, you know, <laughs> throws them on his brother because he's the cat guy, you know, and Joe doesn't let up because he's the deer guy, so. It's almost like I got a picture of the boys and they were small in the Confederate uh, uniforms, one gray, one blue, and they seem to go that way. You know. It started then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's rather interesting that, you know, we've walked a lot of the same ground and, and gone through a lot of the same troubles and problems. And seemingly we've come to very similar positions and philosophies of how a service department should operate. Um, we're, we're going to include you again in our quarterly newsletter. And this one's about staffing guidelines that you just submitted. And I'd, I'd like to focus a little bit on that. The, um, the world that I started in is similar to you, um, but I was hired on a contract to fix a, a computer problem and then became kind of the troubleshooter all around the different, what I call source spots in the dealership. And in service, the man who was the executive vice president, his name was Rod Wallow. He's a wonderful guy. He fired me many times, but he was just one. He was one of those hotheads. If he called me now, I'd just ask him. He's long since passed, but I'd just ask him where he was and I'd be gone. Um, mm -hmm. He was wonderful. But he was really persnickety, picky on how we operated. He Every day at fit for 15 minutes at the end of the day, we squeegeed the, the shop floor. Once a week, we took an hour at the end of the day and we squeegeed everything. There was never a mess anywhere. Safety was right on top of his head right now. Work habits, work methods, cleanliness, no shirts had their shirt tails hanging out. It, you know, it was really straightforward. One of the things that he did that really got my attention was he hired mechanical engineers between their junior year and senior year before they graduated. And he brought them in for four months as, as kind of interns, way the heck below before interns were even thought of. And if they passed muster, we would offer them a job if they graduated and they'd come in, but they would take the job of assistant service manager. They dealt with people, they dealt with customers. They didn't deal with anybody on the floor. On the floor, we had a technical supervisor who did not pull wrenches. And this is back in the early 1970s, which was unheard of in those days. Yeah. And that really struck a bell with me. Rod was a bush pilot. Rod was a master mechanic. He did the job just like you did. And that was his conclusion. And if he ever found a, a supervisor, he called them foreman, but they were all supervisors. He ever found them with a wrench in their hands, he was, they were in deep doo-doo and he'd be right there in their face. 
Yeah. That seems to be the same kind of structure you like to have. I do. I I look at small shops and, and too many times the service manager at best may have a, a, an admin, a clerk, if you will. But the first problem with some of the smaller branches of the service manager, as we all know, he's also the guy that the, if the AC quits work and gets the phone call, if there's potholes in the parking lot, he gets a phone call. If the fence fell down, he gets a phone call. So a lot of your service managers, and especially in smaller branches, are, are big time jack of all trades. But I like to see the service manager, he, he could handle three or four guys very easily. If one of those guys was a working lead man, now I start with a working lead man position and I, I expect, my expectations were 60% revenue, which is, 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 is obviously maybe not even breaking even with that text time, but I believe in having that lead man on the floor because in my early days, especially the hotter the weather, and this is human nature, I did it myself, the mechanics will find every reason to stand inside the office to talk to the boss or walk up to parts to get a part or be somewhere out of the bay. And I used to think back then, now to your credit, the dealership you worked at did it. Too many dealerships, especially in service, if it's a direct expense, it's like poison. We don't want nothing to do with it. But too many managers, in my opinion, don't think it through because you look at what one tech can generate for you in a year's time. I think in the last one I wrote, if they're at 135 with an 85% revenue recovery and you got five guys, you're, you're like about $1.2 million potential revenue in your service department. So that's a lot of money. And, and I agree if the more that tech is out of that bay, the smaller that number will be. So sometimes the trade-off of a working lead man is, is, is beneficial. Then once you get to six to seven, eight, nine techs, then you probably should have a shop foreman or supervisor. I, I, I know people call them one or the other, but a shop supervisor and a uh, service manager. The shop supervisor, I'm trying to elevate the service manager if he's truly the service manager and he's responsible for doing forecast, customer uh, satisfaction, CapEx tooling, uh, the uh, basic overview of the fleet of trucks, that lets him think about the truly big things. And even in a smaller branch, think about those big things can save a lot of money. When the big things start falling on the back burner, then your expenses start creeping up and everybody wants to wring their hands and say, why? So if you've got a service manager, a shop supervisor, and a working lead man on the floor, I like the working lead man on the floor because there should be very few exceptions where that tech's going to have to come out of his bay to go into the office for, for anything. He goes to the working lead man. The working lead man will take that problem from him, and he'll be the go-to guy to go uh, uh, get a solution or an answer, whether it be a, a parts not there, it's supposed to be in, or tooling. And, and then how many times have we seen there? it's a rental machine, we're constantly swapping buckets on loader backhoes, so you end up with two guys over there changing the bucket and it's not really good use of the time. It turns into being a little bit of a BS session. So that working lead man should be the guy that pops on a machine and handles the controls, lets that tech pins the bucket. Boom, that one hour flat rate does work now. You can, you can do that in one hour and move on. So 
you'll have the you'll have the whole article in, in, in I, I think in your uh, uh, quarterly service uh, uh, blog. The newsletter. But it, it goes on up to about ten or fifteen texts, and and the people that you probably should have in place. And I mentioned a technical communicator. Technical communicators are key because I have worked at a dealer where everybody had access to the OEM technical commun communicator. And that just created a lot of problems. And I use the example that stuck with me forever. One tech actually turned in a case that the machine is overheating and the customer is very upset. W what's that guy at, at Catter Komatsu or John Deere going to do with that other than send it back to somebody, take more time, and then, then, then it's phone calls and trying to get more details. So I'm a big advocate of, of either having your one single point of contact, your technical communicator, because then he starts to learn how to gather problems and quantify them. And here's the real key. One of your branches may have came across that problem already. So instead of that tech over in this branch calling the OEM, he calls the tech to communicate and go, oh yeah, we've seen that before at the other branch and, and here's the solution. And great, you're on your way. At the end of the day, it's all about turning the customer's machine around, repairing it correctly and getting it back to him. So you have that single point of contact, but I realize some dealers look at that as a large expense and they don't want to bring that person in, which I would strongly recommend not doing that. But if you do decide to let your own technicians call the OEM, and I've worked with dealers that did that, then by all means, create some kind of a format that that tech doesn't pick up the phone till he's got the make, the model, the serial number, the hours. He has looked to see if there's any product updates or somebody has. See, that's not good use of the text time. That's probably not good use of the working lead, man. That may go to the shop supervisor. But make sure there's a check sheet before everything is, before anybody picks up the phone and calls the OEM, you've done your homework, and now you can call and try to keep, get an answer in a timely manner. Yeah, we had, had um, you, you were probably, I don't think you were a deer at that time, but when John Deere created Dealer Technical Assistance, DTAC, Okay. Um, they introduced it, I think, in the late 80s. And the response from the dealers was so strong, they had to shut it down because they'd understaffed it. And well, there's, yeah. there's cases on that in just about any industry. There's such a thirst for the consumer to talk to people. So yeah. I'm in my classes and service management classes, and I would constantly ask them, okay, how many hours a day do you talk to the customers troubleshooting on the phone. And it would be an hour to two hours every day. Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm, I'm saying, well, why the hell do you do that? So we started looking at different means to be able to, this is again, a long time ago. And we started saying, fine, when we sell the machine, you'll have so many hours available free to talk to my service manager. Beyond that, give me your credit card number and I'm charging 150 bucks an hour to talk to this guy. And then that morphed into exactly what you're talking about, the technical communicator. Mm -hmm. So the people that were responsible for the repair and rebuild and maintenance function could focus on that right, and not be interrupted by this technical advice thing. And to your point, there's a library. These, common, these problems are not unique. They're right. reasonably common. And I... I I uh, moderated a panel for AED convention one year about technical advice. And we had people from material handling, from uh, Harley-Davidson motorcycles, 
automotive, on highway trucks, construction equipment, and all the guys. And every single one of them, with the exception of one, oh yeah, we give them that advice all the time. And the Harley guy, he's out there, he's got a gold diamond earring, he's got long hair, biker boots, a leather jacket, jeans. I mean, mm-hmm. but he owned the dealership. Yeah. He said, oh yeah, I'll give them technical advice. I said, really? He said, oh yeah. By the time I'm about halfway through, he'll realize how complicated it is and he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. He'll have me do it. Now, our problem is most people can't communicate like that. So if you've got a technical communicator who's got that kind of skill, one of the things that's critical for him is to be able to communicate with people. It's, it's, It's kind of simple to say, easily understood, but if if I can take an hour to two hours a day away from the service manager, in essence, I'm paying for a technical communicator. Uh, absolutely, and and with technical communicators, uh, larger dealers I've worked at had two or three actually on staff. But mid-sized dealer one is usually good enough. Yep. And 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 it's true. I I had the same concept when I talked with customers. Uh, we we discussed the charge, and it was always an issue because I personally walked into a service department and a service manager's there and he's on the phone, he's rolling his eyes in the back of his head and he's trying to explain to a guy the difference between deaf and antiphrase. And it's like, why do you wait? Why do you spend your time doing that? And here's what I found out when I, when I was a shop supervisor, I would get a lot of those calls. A lot of them are simple. Hey, what weight oil did I put in my hydraulic tank? You know, it off the top of your head, 10 liters or whatever high guard and, and you're done and gone. But when some of these guys would call in and I was busy, the customers I'm dealing with right now came first. So I would, I would ask for the person's name and phone number and I'll call them back. And more often than not, when I called them back, it was another dealer or it was a broker or it was somebody probably what the, this used to irritate me more and more shade tree mechanics. There was a, and I mean, no disrespect by saying shade tree because I've pulled many engines underneath the shade tree myself, not being derogatory, but usually they become somewhat popular because you don't want to go to the dealer. They charge you too much money. But, okay, well, if this guy wants to spend this, so a lot of times when I'd get the call from that rental mechanic and I knew the owner or I knew that I would call them back and say, hey, this is Bill from Cat or or whoever, and your guy called about a question. I got the answer for you. And so I'd make him know I'm there to really try to help him out, but also to kind of bust him on the fact that, you know, if, if, if you want to go that way, that, that's what you're giving up. And, and, and quite honestly, I don't think dealers charge too much. I religiously take my cars back to the dealer because the labor rate may be high, but if they're on top of their game and you get it back quickly, I mean, you know, we can all play the, uh, the, the numbers games with contractors and how much they're losing when that machine is down. So a lot of times these, when you're nickel diamond over an hourly labor rate, it's not worth it. But giving away free free information and worst case scenario, and I've had it happen to me, <laughs> you give the guy the wrong information, he breaks something, and next thing you know, he wants to call you up and have your field guy come out and fix it. So you're right. I, that, that's a very good idea. You start walking down a path where it gets very complicated. Most people will okay, just to get off the phone, you know, he didn't get it. But on that same theme, we would have a couple trainers in, in service. And again, trainers, God bless them, but usually when it gets slow, 
they're the first to go with the oil lab people, all these non-revenue generators are the first to hit the door. But what I did, one dealership, I couldn't get guys to sit down in the summertime. My, my service managers were screaming bloody murder, but we would line up a nice class, maybe have the OEM come in. And that Monday morning, three of the guys aren't there because the shop got busy or the field got busy. So we tried to do most of our training in the northern part of the country in the winter and fall. In the summertime, we offered contractor training. And I remember having a discussion with the dealer principal. Well, why would you want to train the contractors to do your job? I go, I don't. I want to train them to know enough, to have enough information when it is time to call the dealer. You know, so we would deal in basic electricity, basic hydraulics, and just basic functions of the machine to make them knowledgeable of their equipment, which is a good thing because we want to make customers. But then the emphasis on the point that when you get to here, like when the hydrostats first came out years and years and years ago, if you've got to pull that valve cover off the hydrostat machine, you should really call the dealer because chances are you're going to do more harm than good. But it's just the, the, the outside type repairs and customers loved it. And you wouldn't believe, I guess I was so, I don't know, uh, so used to undercarriage. To me, it was just bulwark undercarriage. There is a real science to how that undercarriage works on that machine and how to get the life out of it. Like when I came to Florida, when I was in Illinois, if a customer didn't get 3,000, 3,200 hours on a turn, he was looking for policy consideration. I come to Florida with the sand and everything in a coral. If they get six, seven hundred hours before all the changes in technology, the roll the turn putting bushes and the uh, uh, deer came out with their they called it armadillo SC2 uh, with the hardened uh, uh, bushings. So I made a lot of good customers, even better customers, by going out to them and having an undercarriage seminar and especially keeping the track tension where it needs to be and that builds good faith between us and the customer and it was something i thought well this is so simple you, you know i don't mind sharing this with the customer i think it's in good faith you buy you buy my equipment i'm going to do everything i can to make sure you're happy with it and that means sometimes for you to be happy you've got to bring it to the dealer and pay that maybe a little bit larger bill because you're going to get it back and it's going to produce for you yeah when I was in the field, it's it's really an interesting situation where where the customer, the buyer, and it's not just in our industry, think that by going back to the company that they bought the prime product from, mm-hmm. they're going to be paying a higher price. Now, some of the automotive manufacturers have made this an art form. Audi and some of the German manufacturers, their maintenance expenses horrific. But as a general rule of thumb, I I take every car I've had, I use the dealers. And I look them straight in the face. I say, look, you're the only one that's ever going to touch this. So if anything goes wrong that's out of the ordinary, I'm expecting you to fix it. And, you know, it's they they stand up to that. I also buy extended warranties. Everybody says, what the heck are you doing that for? I'm not so much on appliances anymore because they started getting a little weird. But... To your point on the customer calling for technical advice, I always, I want to know the phone number. I want to know the model serial number. And you're right. It typically is somebody else 
that's doing the repair. And I call the owner back and I said, uh, you know, Frank, I was just talking to George. Seems he's doing a repair job on your machine. He was calling me for advice. What is it exactly you want him to do? Because he doesn't seem to know. Right. And that's exactly. how I start. And all of a sudden, you know, and the guy that I'm talking to on the phone knows that I own him. Mm-hmm. You know, what are you using yeah. this guy for? You know, when he's asking yeah. me, what do you want me to do with this? Do you want me to tell him the truth or what, George? But it happens if they don't perceive that they're getting value from you. Absolutely. Everybody seems to go back to the price point. What's your hourly rate? And my answer to that is, doesn't matter. Well, how long is it going to take? It doesn't matter. It's 3415 bucks. Right, right. And they say, well, of course it matters. Well, okay, it's $7,000 an hour. What? Or $700 an hour. What? You're nuts. I said, oh, I'm sorry. I made a mistake. It's 70 bucks an hour because it really doesn't matter. Yeah. And yeah. You know, then they come back and say, well, how long is that going to take? doesn't matter. But then, well, they get picky. How long is it going to take? 40 hours. Wow. That's a long time. I'll tell you what. Have you pulled wrenches, Frank? Yes. I said, I want you to sign a release. I'll give you a bay. I want you to come in here and show me how 40 hours is too long. Very rarely does that number get called. Yeah. yeah. No, yeah. So, it's, again, communication is, is really critical. And selling value we the the service managed very few people this is another bone of mine very few people understand the service department we sell equipment we don't repair <laughs> yeah we sell machines you know it, it, it might have been you and i or, or somebody else were talking about it was somebody else the we had an unbelievable year in machine sales so we're going to have a big dinner have all the salesmen and the management yes and this guy goes in he says well are you going to invite the product support guys and it was like what why what for why well they allowed it to happen and it's it's really a strange circumstance you can make more money in your service department than you can sell make selling machinery but people don't understand that yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. And, and that has happened. Uh, once I got to be in a general manager orbit, uh, I got to go to a lot of those dinners just because I was general manager, executive management level. But I remember more than once, one time it, it was it was so appropriate, the theme of the sales meeting, everybody got a, a pen with a like a they cut out of a puzzle piece and and everything was uh, uh, don't be the missing piece or we're all interlocked. There was some theme with these puzzle pieces. And I remember we were in the meetings discussing this upcoming sales dinner. I did ask the, uh, the, the dealer principal, I said, well, are any product support people going to be there? And it just seemed so foreign to him. Why would we have product support people there? And I said, well, I'd, I'd like to think that they actually contributed towards this really killer year we've had in sales. And, uh, Boy, the people in Park Sport would really like to hear it. And, and I don't want to beat a dead horse, but, you, you know, I, I've seen it early on. You know, your product support, that's why I'm so passionate about product support. They're your first people that come in every day. They're usually the last people to leave. Uh, you know, they, they, they may sell a, a $250,000 powertrain rebuild, but what do they get for it? Maybe, hey, great job, but they didn't win a contest. Uh, and they would always hear about salesmen. Oh yeah, he sold two loader backhoes, so now him and his wife get to go to the Caribbean for a week, and it's like what? So it's very important. I, I, I 
I would have to say the success, the really good dealers that feel good to work with, and we always hear about silos, 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 is when those disappear, and those disappear when upper management starts treating all the players as really well-needed equals, and we all contribute to the health of this company. That's why, you know, I go back to uh, Confessions of a Service Manager. You know, Ron, when I pull that thing out and read it, it was written in 2002 or three for the AD Magazine when our friend uh, Matt Diorio was there. And because uh, I was talking about him about it one day, and we both worked at Patton for a while. Right. Uh, I read that, and, and, I, and I talk to other people. Some of that stuff is still going on, and I just, <laughs> I just shake my head that, wow, after 30, 40 years, we, we've progressed so much with technology. And, 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 and training and the availability of training. Now a lot of it's online, so you don't have to get up and go places. I mean, it, making so, it doesn't seem like either A, they're taking advantage of it, or B, they're not practicing it because they'll still be swapping labor around or back charging a sales department for something they shouldn't. There's always that animosity between uh, sales and service. And I understand that I get it if the sales manager is looking at his his, his PL and he sees these huge expenses coming back to him from the service department, I'd get a little hot too, because number one, we didn't even treat him like a customer. And a lot of times they don't even know these expenses are coming. Machine comes back in on rent. Well, it's all busted up. And well, someone should have stopped and called the customer and it's rental damage, but, but you're right. Uh, upper management needs to recognize the, the, the contributions. They do. I'm not saying they don't. But if they all got treated on, a, on that equal playing field, you can reduce these silos. And when everybody is on page or on the same track of dealer health, dealer profitability. But I got to admit, when I was a service manager, I saw one PL, the service PL. It didn't make a damn bit of difference to me what the other guys were doing because I'm either nailing it or I'm losing it or I'm, I'm whatever. And, and the biggest thing is once, once I finally became uh, had responsibility for parts, when I went to uh, uh, the other dealer, Anderson, became uh, general manager of product support, I started looking more at the parts. And I realized why parts managers get upset when you return non-stock items, why you overnight them in and you don't need them. They see them sitting in the corner for a week later. That gets back to why you're, you're a parts expediter. If he works for you in service, you can tell him, I don't need these right now. So bring them in the cheapest way possible, the least expensive. I don't need to overnight them. I've worked in dealers where every back order for service, everyone automatically was overnight. And it may be a large, large job that you don't need. So, but those expenses wasn't hurt hitting my PL. Normally I wouldn't worry about it. But then when I started seeing how, oops, this all comes together, that's how you start eliminating the silos, is you need at an earlier phase to get your service manager and people involved in the health of the dealership and, and where the money's coming and going. One of the things that's interesting, Bill, in that last five, seven minutes, you touched on about 10 different points, all of which, all of whom are really valid. And if you think today about a technician, to me, they are some of the smartest people we now employ because they're dealing with technology that we never dreamt of, telematics, sensors data analytics, life cycle management, all of this stuff. 
And today the number just came out. There's 11.2 jobs open in America right now that need to be filled. That's twice as many people that are collecting unemployment. There's, right. You know, it's, it's, it's a very difficult world. And for learning and training, whether it's customers or technicians, I, I published something yesterday about lifelong learning. Learning has to become a part of our lives. Mm-hmm. We all get comfortable with whatever it is that we're doing and how we're doing it. We protect it, which is why change is such a difficult thing to manage. But if we, t- if we looked at, a, a, at the world through different eyes, I've got to constantly be reading, learning, looking mm-hmm. over the wall at some of these other things that are out there, stealing ideas from wherever it comes. I'm the biggest plagiarist you ever want to find. If I see something working in Europe, I'll bring it back wherever. It, it doesn't matter. But, you know, we, we got to get it going all the way around. The financial statements, the, the, well, one of the points you made, every single person for whom we open a work order is a customer. I don't care if it's rental, sales department, warranty, expense, everybody. And I give everybody a quote and get their approval before we start. And if there's a change, we reissue the whole thing, darn thing again. So that sales manager is looking at his financial statement. If he's surprised, shame on him. Right. Every single day, every single week along the way, we've got it. Rental returns. I'm going to have walk-arounds. And if there's anything that looks out of sort and we're going to drive the machine, I want to have a hot oil test, forward, backward, left, right, up, down, every function of the machine. If there's anything out of sorts, hold. We're going to full, do a full diagnostic inspection and give that back to the rental manager and say, hey, what do you want to do with this? Is it billable to the customer or are you going to eat it? Everything has to have a process. Everything has to have a method that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, it's too many times. I, I think they, the, the, the unscrupulous, unscrupulous service department they don't know it shows up as an expense over here. They're they're doing what they think they think is the right thing, just keeping other guys busy. I can remember the day I had a service manager walk me out to the backyard and say, "You'll never ever have a minute of lost time or non-chargeable time, whatever you call it at your dealership." We called it lost time, non-chargeable. And I said, "Well, how am I going to do that?" Well, there was a fleet of machines. This dude had a big yard. And he said, there's probably something wrong with every one of those machines. So I didn't feel good about that at all because I quickly learned. I became uh, somewhat friends with like the dealer OEM. Our our cat rep was a great guy. And I quickly learned that as soon as they think you're trying to zoom them on something, you're cut off. And we all know there's black and white and gray. And and I, I feel very, very proud of the fact that I was able to cash in on some of that gray area because I had a relationship with the OEM and he knew we didn't go out in the backyard and find all these warranty claims back there just to keep techs busy. You know, uh, sometimes people don't realize your, your reputation and, and dealers have been canceled over stuff like that. I mean, I, I've tried, I've tried to let my boss know in some place I've been where they're maybe not aware of it or they've never read a dealer agreement I said, you know, you own the property and you own the building. 
but the OEM owns that sign and, you know, your business. So, and I know I'm rambling. You, you, when no, you, I was, I was in a meeting. You had about 12 points. I go all over the place, but. Yeah, no, it's, it's okay, Bill. The, the, I was in a meeting one time with an OEM with the executive team of the dealership. And this guy from Caterpillar was really interesting. He looked at the dealer principal and I'm a young guy, I don't know, 23. And um, he said, sir, don't forget your customers were our customers long before they became your customers. Yeah. And they will be our customers long after they cease being your yeah. customer. And I'm, whoa, what in the heck? Yeah. We're a franchise. Exactly. We have responsibilities. Don't play. Follow the rules. Don't try and take advantage. You're going to get caught. If you get caught, it's not nice. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I get I get really cranky example on warranty reimbursement. I'm going to charge you fairly. I'm right. going to use standard times, but your standard time is useless. Where'd you get that? Now, Deer was the only one, bless them, that allowed you to get 133, 1.33 times the standard hours, the service management guide. SPG guide time. Everybody else, here's the hours. Where'd you get those hours? Well, engineering did. Oh, how'd they do that? Well, they got a new machine in a bay and you got all the tools there and all the parts there and everything's clean. It's never been used. And they, they did the repair. And it took them 42 hours to do that engine job. Said, fantastic. Send one of them down to me. And the next time we do one of those engines, I'll call you, send them down and have him do it here, dirty, worn, without all of the tools. The parts have, oh, darn, the manufacturer, you didn't have the part. I had to wait. So I started and stopped. And it, It's the life, the world is not a perfect place. Right. So life cycle management, I really believe in. I believe in getting out there to the customer saying, Mr. Customer, that engine's got 13,500 hours on it. The sensors are telling me that this is my old samples telling me that this is it's time. Mm -hmm. I want to send a, a, a new one to you. Do you want rebuilt, remanufactured, or do you want a brand new one? Now we're in a different game. The other thing that we can't forget, at least I don't think we should, our market share in labor is terrible. The percentage of the hours that are done with a wrench on a machine that we've sold if you're really good, it might be 25%. Yeah. 75% of the hours are done by somebody else. We, we used to do surveys at the AD every five years of, of customers. And in, it, it was happening every blasted survey. They said that they did their own maintenance 90% of the time. And they did it because they recognized that it was cheaper for them to do it than for us to do it. I don't know if you, I'm sure you've done shop cost analysis. Oh, yeah. Oh, if yeah. I sit down with a customer and do a shop cost analysis, very rarely is their cost less than 90% of my selling price. And I'll look at them, I'll say, okay, I'll tell you what. If you guarantee me all your labor and my rate's 150 bucks an hour, I'll charge you 135 and they, mm, yeah, it's still too pricey. And then we go through this. Be honest with me. And I'll hold that price for the next right. five years. Whoa. Yep. I started up a, a lot of PM programs. Uh, 
at dealers. And I, and I can remember working at the dealer when the PM print, uh, PM uh, concept first came up. And I remember actually thinking that customers aren't going to pay us to come out and change their oil. I mean, they, they don't want to pay to come out and, and, and actually fix something. They won't change oil. They're going to hire some guy and blah, blah, blah. But so I remember the dealer, we started out with a trailer and then the guys kept bending the neck on the trailer and the mechanics hated pulling the trailer to a job site. And it was a pain. So we finally bought a PM truck. Well, needless to say, PM was a big business. Now you're absolutely right. And I went through the same thing too. And I would sit down with a customer because I'm convinced that the machine gets maintenance done properly and on time, it's going to have a probably a little bit longer life than otherwise I'm going to be talking a policy consideration on a 3000 hour transmission because something wasn't done or whatever. But sometimes, especially the PMs, I would challenge the customer. Now, hopefully you're going to use OEM filters and fluids, which I'm a firm believer in that stuff too, because I know it's made for that machine. But the customer says, I can go to NAP and get the filter cheaper and I'll tear those arguments up all the time. It's either a different micron rating or there's something why it's less expensive. So I would tell them if you're buying the filters and you're buying the fluids, the, the labor is actually your cheapest part of that equation. That's correct. If I have the tech come out there and he does the inspection, plus pulls all the oil samples, and then once we get you signed up on the program, if we see something that can perhaps wait till the next service, then we can bring those parts with us. You don't have any more downtime. Or the PM guy may say, yeah, there's a serious leak on this thing. Now you can schedule that downtime. And that, that's all the... The, the touch points of a customer I used to love doing because if you can save him the aggravation of unexpected downtime, we can get it scheduled and you can show him that you buy the, you, you buy the parts, our labor isn't that expensive. It's not a bad deal. And several dealers now have really, really good PM programs now. I don't think you were with the deer dealer when they came out with plus 50 oil, which took us from a 200 hour to a 250 hour maintenance cycle. This is back. 35, 40 years. Mm -hmm. And I was working with a group of dealers in an insight meeting and all the dealer principals are in there. I said, boy, this is fantastic. That announcement from Deer a couple of weeks ago. Did you, did you note it? I said, well, what was it? Well, they're plus 50 oil. None of the dealer principals knew about it. Really? It yeah. reduced the maintenance cost for the customer by 20% on the John Deere product. <laughs> and then you, you go a little bit further that John Deere was setting the SAE standards for engine oil from the 1800s. Wow. And then you, you, you go further. You know, every product support salesman, every field serviceman, every counter should have a filter cutter. Oh, yeah. yeah. Somebody comes in with a, a filter. They want to replace it, and it's heavy, and it's leaking, and it's all the rest. And it's a, you know, what is it? I used to go out on the shop floor when we had machines in. If they had a competitive filter, I would put my filter on it for nothing. Mm -hmm. Mr. Customer, I changed your filter. I, you know, you didn't ask for it. It's cost me 15 bucks, 18 bucks, whatever. It's free. Yeah. Now you should change your oil right away because you got dirty oil going through that brand new filter. Whose oil are you using? Mm -hmm. And now we have a discussion. Well, why is that important? No, 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 no. There's so many details, Bill, in what. Oh, yeah. It's, you know, it, there's there's so many opportunities for us to save money for customers. And that's should be what our mission is. Yeah, this, this you're absolutely right. And that's what I really enjoyed more than anything when I got into upper management is all the ways 
you you have the time if you manage it correctly to figure out the ways that you can honestly provide value as you said before add value to the customer keep them happy keep the longevity of that machine there because when it does get time to bring it home he's probably going he's probably going to come back to you and and trade it off but the uh my phone just rang and it just threw me all out of whack. But the uh, uh, the interruptions take labor efficiency right into the toilet. Yeah, there, there you go. See, that's why you know, <laughs> got, got front the customer and sit there. It's a perfect, it's a perfect illustration. <laughs> but I had responsibility during my career at one time for the oil lab, and I I just found that fascinating. And and all the you know oil's not oil, and so I would go to the manufacturers, which they're kind of stingy with. Their spec sheets. I don't want to see your promotional flyers where your oil lasts forever and it's great and it's made out of unicorns and pixie dust. I want to see the spec sheet on your oil. I want to see the pour point, the flash point. I want to see the additive package because when I used to work at the cat dealer, I I truly it was frustrating. I'm trying to help a customer. Bill, your oil's too high. I'll never buy cat oil. It's too high. Who are you using? And then he would tell me, and I got very well versed on this, and most people don't know, the number one, oil is not regulated by the federal government. There's the API ratings, which is just a, a, a group of people. It's not government regulated. And I went to, I got really educated on it that if you brought a 1040 oil to the market, there's a like picture this big window or, or from here to here. And when they the API rates your oil, you can come in here or you can come in way here, but you're still in that 1040 window. So that means I can come to market with a, with a lower quality oil, with a smaller additive package. It's not going to last, you know, all these things and, and sit down in front of you and say, well, yeah, why should you buy cat oil? Because I've got the same 1040 oil for a whole lot less. But when you as the dealer can, can use facts, I love facts because it takes the emotions out. That, well, okay, but you're getting what you pay for here. And I'm trying to give you some longevity. And like you said earlier, if you got a customer doing PMs or even if he's doing his own, but if he's using uh, OEM fluids and filters, he's doing everything right, the OEM and the dealer is more inclined to make a policy consideration when something does fail and it did just go out of warranty. Yeah, and you're going you're gonna to laugh at this, but in, I think it was 1970, late 69 or 1970, I did a video for Caterpillar on oil sampling. And in those days we were using atomic absorption spectrophotometry. We used a flame and you burnt yeah. it and you just yeah. measured. But if you followed those instructions and oil sampling has gone through many, many iterations of, of uh, progress. Australia has a program now that the operator from their compartment, from the operator compartment can take samples Really? Without getting out of the out of the operator's station, and so we we've come a long way. Well, why is that important? Because when you got wear particulates in the oil right. between two metal surfaces, and you you know most people don't understand what the definition of friction is. Again, it becomes details or what our world is. Right. You got to have content. You got to have relative motion, and you got to have temperature. And you know here here we go. Oil is important filters and filtration are important yeah. you know I, I, was, I was here's an interesting little byproduct cummins owns fleet guard fleet guard 
supplies deer. Fleet Guard supplies other people, but let's just take deer. The Fleet Guard dealer in town and the deer dealer in town are selling the same filter. Wrong. And that's where my filter cutter has to come into play. Yeah, right. And again, you got to have knowledgeable people. Too often we get the parts department on the phone and the counter. They're answering the telephone. They hang it up. The next phone rings. Their hair is going straight back. It never stops all day long. And it used yeah. to drive me nuts when, when you know, the, the boss would always come by in Montreal. I've got these eight guys. And in those days, everybody smoked and had a cup of coffee and it yeah. was quiet. The phones weren't ringing. There was nobody there. The guys are having a cup of coffee and a, and a cigarette. The boss comes by me and says, you got too many guys. And they never came when it was busy. Yeah, yeah. You know, so it's, again, the mechanics, um, those machines in the back, don't touch those machines in the back. You're going to have lost time. Plan for it. Right. How much lost time is acceptable? Well, you know, again, it becomes how you supervise the guy. I used to have... The, the supervisor on the floor, the foreman, talked to each guy twice a day. The second call, the second conversation was, are you going to finish everything I gave you to do today? Today, And he says, yes, everything's cool. My schedule's good. My quote's good. Move on. He says, no. I asked the class. What's the question you asked the technician then? What's the matter? What happened? What went wrong? That's not the question. How much longer will it take you to finish it? Because if you can stay that half hour or 40 minutes, it's cheaper for me than having you start up the next morning and trying to figure out where you were when you left last night. Yeah. My my guideline was always at the end of the day, you know, your shop supervisor should be on the floor several times a day. And towards the end of the day, he should have a good idea, but you ask every technician where you at with this and, because someone needs the information too to contact the customer. Now, I like for the service department to call the customer pretty much every day if progress is being made. But if, if the machine is sitting there for two or three days waiting for a backward part, sure, don't call the customer and say, well, it's still backward, it's still backward, and I, now you're going to aggravate him. But if you're absolutely right, if, if that technician can finish the work, and my, my golden rule is an hour, and depending on the customer, I'd stretch that one way or the other. You're absolutely right, because if you watch your text in the morning, a lot of times it's, it's slow getting started. You know, they're by their toolbox and they got to unlock things and they got that cup of coffee going and got to go to the tool room and get some more shop towels or do this or get the tooling that they had to turn in the night. Oh, by all means, invest that time. And I used to, when I would even quote work orders, if I thought, and you touched on that earlier, I, I do believe almost everything without exception should be quoted when it comes into your service department. And it takes away that hourly uh, 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 hourly rate thing. Contractors bid their jobs as well with performance bonuses. So that's nothing new to them, but, but giving them a cost. But what I would do, if it was a small job, and like, you know, it's going to come into your shop and you know it's only going to be like eight hours or so, quote the guy, quote the guy 10, because you're going to tell me you're going to put two hours of overtime or, or just leave it in the quote. Because if, if you're straight rate is 150 and your overtime rate is 180 or 190, whatever it is, that's only $40 more you're charging. People look at the entire dollar amount and go, oh, I can't stick that in. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote you, you know, the, the job and we always put an hour or two of overtime in there. If you need it, great. If not, 
then, then, then you got something you can either give back to the customer or, 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 or find something else to do uh, that, that is machine that needs. But, uh, but by all means, everything should be quoted all the time. Bill, we've, we've run all over the, the countryside with all manner of, of uh, subjects, and I've appreciated it terrifically. We, we should probably wrap it up. Uh, any, any kind of a silver bullet piece of advice you'd give people at dealerships in managing the service business? Well, if, if you're a service manager, uh, you do need to be educated in some financials. Again, there's dealers that they call the, the, the position service manager, and he's kind of the shop foreman. And then there's a the service manager that does generally sit in an office away from service or whatever. But they should learn the financials, never quit training themselves, and more importantly, their technicians. I used to run that, get a rundown of all my techs every month and see who was doing any training, and you didn't want to be the guy that was doing little or no training. They'll never be your best techs. So that training goes all the way from entry-level tech up to the product support manager. There, there's, there's materials that they can use. Never take your customer for granted. Always follow up with a phone call. All the things that you say we're too busy to do are probably the very important things you need to do. And I've seen them want to make, they'll make phone calls when they're not busy because it's no problem. But when it gets busy, we quit doing it. But that's the other goal. If you break the consistency, if the customer knows he sends you something, he's going to, his expectations are you're going to keep him informed, you're going to give him a quote, and you're going to live with that quote, you're going to have a happy customer. And then when the job's done, car dealers do it for me all the time. Someone has the time to call up and say, Mr. Piles, uh, you know, follow up on a repair. Were you happy? Did you need the car? Was it clean? And I, I feel good about that. It, it tells me you care. Yeah. So, yeah, there's a funny statement in the world of customer service. If you're going to be mediocre, stay mediocre. Don't confuse the customer by being excellent one day and terrible the next day. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it, um, it goes on. Look, I think this is wonderful. Thank you for your time. Thank you for your expertise. I look forward to doing this again with you in the not too distant future. So um, at that, I'd like to thank the audience for um Staying with us, and I hope you enjoyed what um, Bill and I talked about and look forward to the next candid conversation with you. Mahalo. Thank you for listening to our podcast. We appreciate your support. Should you have any thoughts or comments, please don't hesitate to contact us at www.learningwithoutscars.com. The time is now. Mahalo.